we're going to be um, continuing, well, actually transitioning a bit. Um, we have been talking about the conquest of the land of Canaan and how the children of Israel came into the land and um, took possession of it. And they haven't yet driven out everybody. And, but there comes a pivotal moment at the end of Joshua. We're transitioning into the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, uh, obviously we're going to see uh, several judges r- rise up and defend Israel, uh, ironically enough. But they're going to defend Israel in the face of, of many enemies. But we, we've talked about for some time that the, air, the place that they're going into is prime real estate. I'm just going to put up a map real quick so you can take a look at it. Um, and just refresh your memory. It's a map you've seen before, but it's um, the land of Canaan or Palestine, whatever you want to call it, um, is prime real estate. You can see that it's just north and to the east of Egypt, and it is directly to the west of uh, Mesopotamia. And this whole thing, this whole piece here that on the map is in green, forms the Fertile Crescent. And so for centuries upon centuries. This, this actually happens all the way into the New Testament, by the way. This uh, uh, area of Canaan becomes a bridge to so much of civilization. Um, in fact, as we move into the New Testament period, into the intertestamental period, after the Old Testament's over, before the New Testament begins, that 400-year window there, uh, so many nations, empires, Greece, Rome, so many, Egypt, are fighting over this territory right here, which is why in the New Testament you get into a, a position where there's a lot of different cultures and that have been kind of flowing through that land because so many people are fighting over this. But one of the things that becomes nothing short of a miracle, really, is that as, the, as Joshua and the children of Israel go to take possession of this land, that they can actually take possession of it. That's a miracle in and of itself. How does that happen when you've got Egypt that owns it down to the south uh, and, and not too far away from it? I mean, we're talking a couple days walk uh, to get to that. So Egypt owning this whole piece of land here, the children of Israel are able to walk in. And what we found out is that because of the time period that they're in, um, the foreign policy of Egypt was just non-interventionist. So they just kind of took a libertarian approach to foreign policy and just decided we're going to take care of ourselves and we're not going to really worry about the rest of the world. And uh, so for two pharaohs, they just kind of just sat there and didn't really care. And so uh, the children of Israel were just able to walk in and take it pretty much. Um, Plus the people that are in the land were just really kind of city-states and they didn't really have much of an army to speak of to fight against Israel. And so they were able to just sort of take it. Um, but there's some other big deals here because you walk into a land as a people and you divide it up and you say, okay, we're going to take all these places. That's where the book of Joshua ends. They divide it up and, and allot it and apportion it to each tribe and things like this. And they all go and settle there. And they're in charge of driving out the enemies that are there in the land. Um, but you have kind of a problem because you don't have really a unified monarchy. You don't have a kingdom, so to speak. You have a lot of independent little tribes taking over their pieces of land. 
um, there's not a, a, like a government, a unified government, so to speak, of, of all the people, except, well, we follow the book of the law. Um, so for the next like 300 years, they're going to be in the land, and there's not going to be much of an organization, so to speak. So the miracle of them walking into the land and settling there doesn't just stop with Joshua. It can't. Because let's be honest, if Egypt really wanted to come in and take control again of Palestine, they probably could have. And they could have enslaved the Jews underneath their thumb. Well, why didn't they? Uh, For that matter, there's lots of other powers around Palestine. Why didn't they? come in and see Egypt is just watching these people take over. Why don't we just walk in and take it? We're much more uh, strong than they are. Why don't we just come in and take it? One thing that that's, I, I, the, first, the more you study, I think the more you see that uh, faith is reasonable. What, what God is asking us to believe in the Bible is reasonable. It doesn't mean that you can explain every miracle away. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that he's not asking you to believe something that contradicts what actually happened in history. There's actual proof that these things took place, that this happened. Uh, and, and I think we'll see some of that tonight. Um, so the children of Israel have divided up the land and they've gone in. And, and there's, there's several pieces of, mess, of this area that are really important for you to remember, just... Uh, I guess you'd say uh, sections of the map that are really important. This whole area of Mesopotamia the, the, uh, is really, really important. This region right here, uh, Babylon, Assyria, the Kessites, uh, or the Kassites are going to be here. So that's going to be a really important area. Palestine, obviously Israel. Egypt, obviously, is where the Egyptians are. Um, you have the Hittites that are going to be up in this region up here. They're going to be a really important player in this whole thing. So you have Babylon slash the Kassites. You have the Assyrians that are going to be in this area. So Babylon, the Kassites, Assyrians, Hittites, Israel, and Egypt. Those are going to be really, really important players. We need to know what's happening with all of them at the moment where the judges are beginning to be established, where we're starting to see this time period of the judges taking over. Now, um, when it comes to dating of when the period of the book of Judges is really taking place, what are we looking at? Well, we can tell some of the dates we're actually given or, or are alluded to us, and we, we base most of it on the dating of the Exodus, which we have put in the year 1446 B.C., and for all of you graphic people, people that are visual people, you might want to just put a timeline on the top of these little set of notes. I intended to do that tonight for you, but I thought, ah, it'll be more fun for you to do it yourself. Uh, <laughs> 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 just ran out of time is what that was. <laughs> so, um, but 1446 would be the date of the Let's throw kind of a lot of dates at you. And I know most of you probably back in your teenage years kiss dating goodbye. But uh, we're going to get back into it a little bit more. Uh, sorry, I had to do that. I don't know. S- stupid, I'm sorry. Um, so, 
<laughs> so um, anyway, so we go back to the Exodus. We know with relative certainty there's arguments, as we talked about, about the dating of the Exodus. 1446, some people date it in like 1200. Um, this, uh, I think tonight we're going to see that that would be very problematic, I think, if we, had, if we dated it then. But 1446 is probably when the Exodus is taking place, somewhere around there within a few years. And then the wilderness wanderings uh, are ending 40 years after that. Now, there's some debate as to whether 40 years was from the time they left Sinai, which was like two years that they, from the Exodus, then Sinai, then the time they leave. So is 40 years start then, or does it start from the Exodus? Uh, we're, we're not sure. So it's either 40 or 42 years, but it's, it's going to be right around there. That's why sometimes the dates can move just a little bit left or right, um, but certainly not 200 years. That's not what we're looking at. So, uh, but we date it from the... Uh, Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And then uh, we have the conquest of the land, which took approximately seven years. So they get in and they start battling people and they start trying to drive people out. And that whole thing takes place about seven years uh, or seven years in length. And the reason we know that, or we're pretty certain about that, is because Caleb's own testimony and that is in uh, Joshua 14, 7 to 10. He gives us a little bit of dating, which helps us when we're trying to put years on these things. So let's, in your verse packet there, just two, two passages here. But Joshua 14, 7 to 10, he says, I was 40 years old when Moses sent the servant of the Lord, uh, the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. Uh, but my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. So there's a lot of years that we get in there from Caleb. So it says that he was 40 when he went to spy out the land, which um, would have been in 1444. They went to spy it out. He was 40 years old and 85 at the completion of the conquest, which uh, would have been 1399. Um, uh, according to, to uh, Caleb. So that's when we take the ending of the conquest there. And so we, we do have some pretty, uh, we're pretty certain, sorry, this is jumping around on me. That wasn't my fault. Sometimes it clicks twice when I only click once. All right. Um, we have some, we're pretty certain about Caleb's years and dating, and that seems to be pretty easy enough if we're even decent at math. But um, Joshua's is a little bit more speculative. We don't really know how old Joshua's. We're, we're told he died at 110, but we don't know all the years in between where he was. And so most of the time what we're doing with Joshua is we're speculating that he was about the same age as Caleb. And some people guesstimate somewhere around 30 years old when they went to spy out the land, uh, somewhere around then. But what we come to when, it, when we all cut to the chase is that the years that the of the period of the judges, of the book of Judges, was sometime 
between probably about 1360 or 50, somewhere in there, to about 1084. And most people see that as a reasonable date from the transition from Joshua to the period of Judges all the way to the end of the period of Judges, ending with Samuel beginning to take over there in 1084. Uh, what we'll see as we get closer to the book of Samuel, um, Saul, uh, yeah, Saul is going to take over in 1051. David will then be in 1,000. Solomon in 950, just to kind of give you a, just a quick skip of where we're, we're going. Don't worry about writing that part down. We'll, we'll get that later. Um, so does that make sense? That's what we're looking at. So if you just keep in your mind, or if you even write it on the top of your paper, if you need to, 1360 slash 50, somewhere in that, is the beginning of the Judges period to 1084. And so some of the rest of these dates will kind of begin to make sense as we look at all these other kingdoms that are around and what they're doing in the meantime. What you'll see is that it doesn't, it's not necessary um, to have a powerful army or an army powerful enough to defeat the most powerful army there. Because Israel probably doesn't have that. Now they have the Lord, obviously, so that kind of changes things. That's, that <laughs> upends the calculus a little bit, you know, if they can just drive out any enemy they want. But as far as numbers and power and might, they probably don't have as, as, they definitely don't have as much money and they probably don't have as strong a military as someone like Egypt does. But it turns out you don't really need as strong a military as the other guy or a stronger military than the other guy. You just need somebody else to be preoccupied with other people, right? That's really what you need. You need them to be far more concerned about all the people around you than you. Uh, that's, that's kind of what you're wanting. Uh, you know, a lot of little countries in World War II, Blake, correct me if I'm wrong, because my World War II history is really terrible. But, um, but a lot of countries in World War II were probably pretty thankful that the U.S. got involved, I'm sure, uh, because they didn't have to have as strong an army as the Nazi regime, but they knew that America was there, and the Nazis were far more concerned with America coming in than, than, with, than they were with these little countries, right? So that's kind of what it turns out is really sort of happening in the political landscape around Israel. So um, the old Babylonian empire has since fallen. And this is, we're talking ancient Babylon, really, really ancient Babylon has since fallen and has given way to an empire called the Kassites. Now they were in power, if you'll remember, dig back in your memory, you probably won't remember, that's okay. Um, but they were in, in power when, uh, Joshua, when Joshua and the children of Israel were going into the land. Uh, the Kassites were in power, and they were, kind of they were kind of the big power player in the Mesopotamian region. They were in that area down by the Persian Gulf where we see uh, Babylon eventually taking over. But that, that's the Kassites. They are in that same territory as Babylon. They're just a, a political regime that's there. They're powerful. But... They are beginning to wane. They're beginning to, their power is beginning to recede. And what we see taking place now, as the children of Israel are in the land and it's divided up, that the Assyrians are becoming a little bit stronger by the minute. And so the Assyrians are beginning to pick up a little bit of steam and grow in power. Good night, nurse. Here we go. Hang on. been one of those days, you know, uh, just one of those days. Um, Ashur, 
Ubalit, Asherubalit, uh, was on the throne of Assyria. Now, he's, this is taking place from 1365 to 1330 is when he's ruling. So this is the beginning of the Judges period, if, you, if, if you're remembering. So Judges period, probably about 1360. He's been on the throne about five years as the Judges period takes over. Uh, he takes over the throne. He is on the throne at the close of Joshua's conquest. So Joshua's time is over and he's about to die. And he's uh, on the throne. And he's, the empire under him is growing. The problem is these pesky Kassites to the south are always in the corner of his eye. The, when you have a regime growing up uh, next to the most powerful regime, it's very hard to just kind of take over the land and settle. Um, just for a moment, and I don't want to get, I'm not trying to get political, but you, nowadays you, you can't, hardly can't help it. Um, just imagine for just a moment that um, Mexico had developed uh, weapons of mass destruction and had developed a military over the last, let's say, 10 years that rivaled our own military. And imagine they had, uh, their economy began to grow and boom to where they were not dependent on America in any way and uh, not really dependent on any foreign resources or anything like that, but had their own resources, their own military, their own booming economy, all of these kinds of things. What do you think we would do about that? Do you think that we would, be, we would go, good for you? <laughs> no. <laughs> we wouldn't. Uh, politics, war, it still works the same way that it did back then in many ways. It's just Maybe a, perhaps a little bit more clandestine. All right. So uh, you've got these two people, these two empires, Assyria and the Kassites in Babylon. The Kassites had been in control and Assyrians grow up and they're booming. Their economy is booming. Their military is booming. And uh, the, well, the Kassites are not, they don't like that. And so there's these skirmishes that just continue to happen regularly. And the Assyrians, no matter how powerful they get, they can't seem to just put um, the, the Kassites to rest. So the Assyrians are mostly occupied with the Kassites, which are to the south. And then, not only do, are the Kassites uh, pretty bad for them, but then the, the Hittites become a real problem. So you got the Hittites, which if you remember the map, if you remember uh, there's the area of Palestine directly to the north of Palestine is the Hittite Empire. They're starting to grow in power too. So now you've got in the region where the children of Israel are trying to establish themselves in the land, you have three empires that are growing in strength. And all of them are equally concerned about the other. Now, who owns Palestine? Egypt. Don't forget about Egypt. Nobody, none, none of the three, really want anything to do with Egypt because they're strong. Who wants to just go and pick a fight with the beast that's been around for a long time and has a strong military? So they're not too keen to go down into Palestine and pick a fight with them either. Now, eventually what happens in Mesopotamia 
is uh, Tiglath-Pileser the first. It's not the last time you're going to hear that name, Tiglath-Pileser. Isn't that a fun name? That's a fun name. I tried to name my kid that when he was born, and my wife said no. Um, and then I tried Polycarp, and she said no. I said, what about Tertullian? And she said no. Uh, <laughs> Tiglath-Pileser I thought would be a really strong name, a good... <laughs> uh, Yeah, Tiggy. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser. I believe it's Tiglath-Pileser III, which will come along much later. We'll talk about later. Uh, I think his nickname is Pull, if I remember right. Is that right? Do what? Real real crowd pleaser. (laughs) Crowd Pileser. So he begins to, um, to raise up Assyria, and they have a bit of a resurgence. And what happens with Assyria is they begin to pick up some real steam under Tiglath-Pileser. And he, he actually starts uh, getting enough steam where he can start moving toward the west. Uh-oh, look out, look out Palestine. He's coming for you. So he, he starts moving toward the, the west, toward the Mediterranean Sea. And if we take a look at a map... Uh, Tiglath-Pileser is here in Assyria. He starts moving west and starts conquering a lot of areas in between here and the Mediterranean Sea. But once he gets to the Mediterranean Sea, he doesn't turn south. It's just kind of a strange thing, but it's not too strange when you consider Egypt still owns this area. So Tiglath-Pileser is quite content at the moment to own most of the Mesopotamian region up to the Mediterranean Sea, but not quite gutsy enough, if you will, to turn south and pick a fight with Egypt. But what we're also going to see, I think, is that when you start to look at some of the movement in the land of Canaan, there's a little bit of concern about the people that are actually in the land. There's a million or more people that have just settled in this area. And it seems as though there are governments are a little bit, a little bit concerned. And we're going to see that with Egypt here in just a little bit. Um, but, but essentially, that's what's going on with Mesopotamia. So then we move to the Hittites. Now, what are the Hittites doing? Remember the Hittites? They're in the area uh, labeled on the map Hatti. Uh, the Hittites are right in this area up here just north of the land of Palestine. Well, what are they doing? Well, um, the Hittites uh, were basically they came to a place of prominence under. Anybody want to take a take a stab at it? Yeah, old Supi. Shupi Lululimas. I guess we'll go with that. From now from now on, he'll be called He. Um, so, <laughs> so by the time Joshua dies, he had invaded Syria. Now, Syria is closely connected to Hatti. So you have the land of the Hittites, you have Palestine right here, and in between is Syria. It's actually still in that area today. But by the time Joshua died, he started to invade Syria and he started to claim everything as far south as Gubla, which is also named Biblos. I'll show you that on the map in just one moment. Okay. Let me go back. See what is going on here? Okay, it's right here. Yeah. 
So uh, Syria, there's, this is Assyria. This, is, this isn't an accurate map for what we're talking about right at this moment. But uh, Syria would be like right in this area here. So he's gone down into Syria, and he's picked some skirmishes there. So it's just, everybody just kind of conquers the, ne- the neighboring town. That's kind of how it works, right? Um, okay, let me get back to where we were. I'll show you some of these spots on a map in just a moment. But um, in 1300, Ramesses II, he is the best. Ramesses II of Egypt attacked the Hittites. So Egypt has, Egypt's getting nervous. All right, you can imagine Egypt owns the area of Canaan. Uh, Ramesses II is pretty powerful. Uh, anybody that's seen Nacho Libre is laughing over here because uh, of Ramses. But Ramses II is pretty powerful. He's one of the more powerful pharaohs in Egypt. And this is, Ramses II is the one that some people put the Exodus under, which I think is pretty ridiculous, but um, they do. And so Ramses is, he is concerned about foreign policy, and he does have a little bit more power. And he's kind of restored Egypt to a place of prominence. And so as you can imagine, if the, uh, the, if, uh, the Hittites are moving south into Syria, that's getting close to things that he owns. And so he's going to go put the Hittites in their place. So he moves up into the land where the Hittites are and has a battle with them at Kadesh on the Orontes, which is uh, an area. I hope this is the right map. I may have put in the wrong map. I'm sorry if I did. Oh, no, here I am. Okay, so the Hittites had moved south into, there's Byblos or Gubla Byblos, okay? Um, There is Kadesh on the Orontes, which is a lake. uh, uh, Egypt has moved up into this area and had a battle with the Hittites here. But bad news for Ramses, he loses the battle and gets pushed back into Egypt. Uh, I got a question. Okay. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. When we get to Egypt, we're going to see he has a campaign. It's far less significant, but he does have a campaign through uh, Palestine, yes. Um, But he he is ruling. He comes up there, picks a fight with uh, the Hittites, and and does not win. It's a major blow to Egypt. They go back licking their wounds. Now, um, imagine this playing out in today's world. So imagine, okay, well, you, we don't have to imagine uh, Pearl Harbor. Japan picks fight with America. It's probably really bad that I get into all these war things, and I don't know what I'm talking about. But um, <laughs> Japan picks fight, America. America wakes up, goes to Japan, and uh, destroys them, right? Um, and doesn't just let them... Just doesn't just defeat them. I mean, continues to press in on Japan, and sees that as a as a pivotal moment in in the war. And we we have to continue to squash Japan. Well, you would think that the Hittites, having beaten a powerful force like Egypt, and sent them back to Egypt, licking their wounds. What would you do? Well, you wouldn't just let them run back and build up their forces again. What would you do? You'd go after them. But you got all these other power players in the region. 
You got Assyria. You got uh, the Cassites are waning. You got Babylon starting to rise up. You've got a lot of other players there that are of concern, that are also picking fights with the Hittites. The last thing that you want to do is move down into Egypt and take your army and move them down here and defeat Ramses and then have Assyria move in and kill you on the back end. So for the Hittites, it just seems like it's not worth going down into the land, which would have surely had them run through the land of Palestine, taking out the Israeli army on the way and moving into Egypt. Instead, they say, you know what? It's not worth it. We just need to stay here and make sure that we can defend ourselves against the far greater threat of Assyria to our east, which is sort of crazy. Now, once again, we got the Hittites. Um, anybody want to take a, take a stab? Hatu Shulish. Hatu Shulish. It's really Hatu Shulish. Um, was forced to sign a parody treaty with Ramses II. So Ramses II again comes back up into the land and uh, basically in 1284 signs a parody treaty with the Hittites. And what that basically means is that they agree neither one of us are going to encroach on each other's areas. What does that do for Israel? Do what? Yeah. Israel is parked in the DMZ. Not the DMV. You'll never get out of there. The DMZ. The demilitarized zone. <laughs> they are, so they're parked right in the middle of sort of a sweet spot where, Egypt, where Ramses has basically made an agreement with the Hittites. We won't come near you. You don't come near us. And everybody will be fine. Okay. So, um, so basically the Hittites then were of no factor during the time where the judges ruled. So what you're going to notice in like the first five books of the Old Testament, up and even really Joshua as well, you're going to notice that there's, a, there's mention of other places, other cities. Uh, there's even going to be mention of things, especially in the first five books, outside the land of promise. You get into the judges and there's like no mention of that at all. Not really any concern with any foreign territories. That's because they're all neutralized, essentially, by each other. They just sort of don't really want to pick a fight, or if they do, they're concerned with that person and that person. And so it just becomes this sort of uh, happy zone, I guess you would say, uh, that they're in, that they find themselves in. Now, Egypt. Let's move to Egypt. What's Egypt doing at this moment? Well, in the days of the judges of Israel, Egypt was ruled by, we have the, the latter 18th dynasty, the 19th dynasty, and the 20th dynasties. Okay, so those are the, not that you really care what that means, just kind of think in your, in your head, just put, those, put a pin in those, 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasties. Now, we get to one of the pharaohs, Seti I, very, very easy to say, Egyptian names, um, Seti I, and he is in the 19th dynasty, and he actually has an, uh, uh, an expedition up through the land of Canaan. And this becomes actually a really important uh, marker in history for us. And the reason is because if you notice the years he reigned, 1318 to 1304, he goes up through the land of Canaan and he 
uh, has an interaction with a group he calls the Hapiru. All right, you'll see that there in your notes. It looks like capital A-P-I-R-U. See that? There's a little mark above the A that gives you the H sound. So Hapiru. Now, does that sound like anything you know? Sounds like Hebrew, doesn't it? Does it? It doesn't. Y'all are like, no, that doesn't sound anything like <laughs> Man, I thought that was going to land better. Uh, no. Uh, the Hapiru uh, is a commonly referred to people group, and nobody really knows much about them. Okay, uh, just briefly, let me say, mention a couple things. The Hapiru are referred to earlier than the Hebrews coming into the land of of Canaan. But they were a nomadic people and they were a fighting people. So what was known about them is they were kind of like mercenaries. They would join up sides and they would fight. And they had apparently a pretty lethal military. At least from what we can gain in history, that's what they were. There's some speculation that they came into the land of Canaan at about the same time that the Israelites came in. And because the Israelites were known as the Hebrew people, that the, the Hapiru, who might have actually joined forces in some cases, in some skirmishes with the Hebrews, became sort of one and the same group of people and just sort of became a, a, a collection of people. Well, uh, Seti goes up into the land now, it's, it's, it's important to note where he goes. The green, follow the green. Okay, we're looking at the green. He comes up from Egypt, and he goes up through here. And notice where he's kind of staying. He stay, it's hard to kind of tell because it's not really zoomed in. He stays mostly up in the area where the Philistines are. He doesn't really go into the interior in Israel at all. And it becomes a really curious moment in history why this uh, Egyptian pharaoh doesn't, he actually intentionally walks around the land of Canaan for the most part. But then we, we know this because of a, a, a stela that we found, a little a document that we found at Bet Shean, not a document, a big stone that we found at Bet Shean. Bet Shean is right here. He goes to Bet Shean, which is in the interior of Israel. And has a fight here where he encounters a group he calls the Hapiru. But other than that, he stays on the outside of the land and works his way up the side of the land. That's his extent of his time in Canaan. But he does document that he encountered the Hapiru, and we think that that's probably the Israelites, because that's where they would have been at about that time. Um, in the internal parts of the land. Incidentally, just a quick plug, if you do go with us to Israel, we will go to Bet Shean. And you will go in and you will, you will look at all, all the land there. You will see uh, how it's been settled over the years. And this will be the, the most well-preserved city of about 300 B.C. or so that you'll find. Uh, yeah, uh, I, think it's, I think that's about right, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken on my years. But it, it is remarkably well-preserved. And you will see uh, chariot marks on the streets. You will see a temple. You will see uh, all kinds of things. So there's my plug. Do what? Bathhouses. Bathhouses. A, a big uh, latrine is what you will see. It's still intact today. 
uh, though you cannot use the bathroom in it. Um, so, <laughs> but uh, you, you will see, it's uh, remarkable. It is unbelievable, this place. So uh, probably my favorite spot on the whole thing. Um, anyway, that being said, uh, at Bet Shean, we find this uh, stela that basically accounts from, for, for Seti and his journey up through the land uh, of Canaan and encountering the Hapiru, which are most likely the Hebrews. They're in the land in 1318, between 1318 and 1304. That presents a problem for late day Exodus, right? If the Hebrew people are already there in the land, well, according to a late date, the Exodus hasn't happened yet, right? So we have that problem. Okay. Um, he's going up there to basically uh, have an expedition, go up there and, and claim his territory, essentially. Um, but that's all, that's all we know, really, about it. I mean, it's just that, that he, he goes up in there and he encounters the Hopi Root. Um, that's its mark of significance. Um, so uh, then we get um, a man by the name of Merneptah, um, he made at least one campaign into the land of Israel. Oh, I want to back, I'm back up because you had asked about Ramses. Okay. Ramses also makes a campaign up in here. He's the red line. Okay. He goes to the outside of the land for the most part uh, and goes up in here. This is where he gets uh, his tail whooped. That's the right way to say it. Uh, he gets defeated up here. And that's, uh, so, but that's, his, that's the mark of, where, of the path that he took to get up there. Um, so both of them have a campaign through the land. And one thing that's known about uh, the last Pharaoh, uh, back up, Merneptah, is that he also has a campaign in the land that we know about. Um, he works his way up to the land, and he actually, there's the Merneptah stela is another stone kind of document that basically talks about his journey up, in, up into the land of Canaan and defeating the Hebrew people. Now, look at his years. What's his years? 1236 12, 12, to 1223, 12, which is when, about when they say the, the late date of the Exodus would be, or it's just after the late date of the Exodus, which would mean that he's encountering the Hebrew people lickety split after the Exodus. I mean, really, really fast after the Exodus, which seems too improbable to actually have been settled there. But if the Hebrew people were actually in the land you know, some hundred plus years, then that would actually make sense. So Merneptah gets up into the land and he has an encounter with the Hebrew people and it seems to be mostly in the Jezreel Valley. You know that the Jezreel Valley, there's a famous city there or a famous place there. The Valley of Megiddo is there in the Jezreel Valley or just on the outskirts of the Jezreel Valley. So uh, the Jezreel Valley. He has a skirmish there with the Hebrew people. It's kind of all we really know. He says that he uh, handed them their lunch, basically, in not so many words. And uh, that's, that's really all we know about it. We don't really know uh, much else about any kind of battle there, but it seemed to be mostly located there in the Jezreel Valley. All right, so that's Egypt. They had a couple campaigns up into the land of Canaan because, remember, they still understand this as their territory. Uh, nobody's told them, I guess, this, that it's not. And, um, and so they, they, are, they are more concerned with the Hittites to the north. They're concerned with Assyria, um, Babylon, and they make a couple of escapades up into the land of, of Canaan. But then after that, 
they go remarkably silent and don't really mess with the land of Canaan at all after that. And by the time they get their wits about them, Israel has already established a monarchy there and is already settled there. The land is securely theirs. And so Egypt sees no real benefit in actually going and fighting for it. So how much of the territory they actually cared about keeping is anybody's guess. Is anybody's guess. So that's Egypt. Now, what seems to be pretty evident is in the period between 1360 and 1085 is that Israel remained almost completely untouched by international affairs. For four, three, four hundred years, all of the people that had a stake in that land just dropped the ball. I mean, stepped on the rake. What do you want to... I mean, they, they, just, they just didn't do anything. And Israel not only established the land, divided the land, settled in the land, ran off the people that were there in the land. Well, for the most part, we're going to talk about that next week. But, and then just occupied the land, established a monarchy in the land to the point where now it can no longer be taken. Now, the one exception to that was the Philistines. They remained in the land, and they were a major problem. And this is abundantly made clear in the biblical record. The Bible attests to this over and over, that the Philistines were ever and always a problem all the way up until uh, Samson, even into Samuel's day. Um, at the end of, or the middle of 1 Samuel, we'll still see them dealing with the Philistines and finally putting an end to it. Um, but it's a, uh, the, the Philistines become a major, major problem. And it's, it's abundantly clear. But in spite of all that, what you see is that there is a providential sovereignty of the hand of God over this land as the nation of Israel grows to establish it. Terry Mobs. Uh, so the Philistines are a separate little group that are not part of these others, right? Yeah, boy, that is a million-dollar question, yes. Yes. Um, the Philistines are, we, we, we know them as the Philistines pretty later on in history. Um, by about the time of the judges. Before then, there was a group called the Caphites, I want to say. I have to look it up. But there's another group that came from the area where the Philistines were. The Bible actually links those two together and says they are the Philistines. Um, and they were from this land over near Italy, near Crete, that, or Greece and Crete in that area. And they were seafaring people. They sailed over there. They settled on the coastal area. And Israel just never drove them out. That's right. In fact, remember when they leave Egypt and God tells them there's a quicker way that I could take you, but I'm not going to because there's a people group there that will fight you. And I'm nervous. No, he doesn't say that. I say that. Uh, that, that was bad theology. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I was getting too liberal for my own good there. Uh, he, uh, he says, you know, you're, you'll get nervous and you'll turn around and run because you'll see war and I don't want you to see that. And so that, that group is the, the Philistines and they're located right there in that, in that coastal highway that goes from Egypt that looks like Seti took up through um, the land of Canaan. And so they turn and go a different, different route back the other way. And, uh, and that's the reason because the Philistines, they're a fighting people. They're a weird, just a weird group of people. 
And honestly, the, this part, the Philistines are part of the reason the tribe of Dan did what they did. Um, Dan moves into that area, and they're, they're supposed to occupy the, the hills all the way down to the coastal territory by the Mediterranean Sea. And it's a small portion of land, but, but, um, but they were supposed to occupy the whole thing. And part of the enemy that they're supposed to drive out of the Philistines, and they don't want to. So they just, you know, we're good up here in the hills. We'll just stay right here. We like the hills. We actually, it's good for us. It's good the sun on our skin. We like it up here. We don't want to go down there. And so they didn't want to fight the Philistines. And so eventually the area that they were living in got too small for them. Go figure, because it was supposed to be much bigger. And they take a pagan priest and they uh, grab some loot from a temple and they take off north and settle in a different area. Um, the tribe of Dan does. And so uh, we'll see that much later on. But, but essentially it's because they don't want to drive out the Philistines. Um, yeah, I mean, there's other tribes that are occupied there too. But if you know, um, you know uh, Gaza, the Gaza Strip, uh, um, Ashkelon, Ashdod, all the areas that when we go to Israel, uh, which you should go, by the way, uh, <laughs> uh, when we go, that you won't, we won't get to go to, uh, all those areas, those were Philistine cities. And um, now are under Arab control, and um, so. Other questions? Yeah, there. Um, I'm trying to think. There, there are some skirmishes between the Egyptians and Philistines, and I, I, I don't recall enough of it to to be able to tell you. But, but um, they saw them as a problem as well. We'll say it that way. I think everybody saw them as a problem. But yes, they, to answer your question, uh, to make a short answer long, uh, Terry, the, the, the Philistines are a different group. <laughs> so, any other questions? Hmm. Um, Ramesses being a, a, like a monotheist, like him being a monotheist, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think that that's Ramesses. Um, Egypt became monotheist for a brief period of time under um, somebody before Ramesses, and I, I cannot replace the name right now. Uh, I may think of it a little bit later. But I'm not aware of them. I know that they went back to polytheism. I'm not aware of them going back to monotheism after that, but I could be wrong. So that may be, that may be right. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, he may be the one who was turning it back from. I just remember him being in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that's really hard about Egypt, it's just really difficult with Egypt, is the years. You'll notice that some of the years I've got, you look them up. You'll find, if you look up Ramses 14, or any Pharaoh, in 14 different places, you'll find 14 different sets of dates because the Egyptians were good at recording history, but they, the way they recorded it is a bit sketchy. <laughs> they never recorded any losses, though we know they had losses. Um, so they just never recorded any. They, they, uh, some of the dating of the Egyptian calendar is really strange and it's very hard. And that's part of what makes it really difficult to date the Exodus coming out is because the, you line it up with the Egyptian dates and it just, there's nothing that makes sense over there 
because no two sources agree on when the dates were and stuff like that. So it, Egypt becomes really difficult to get a, a clear picture of what's going on, but I, I'm, I'm not aware of the turning back to monotheism, I think, under, under Ramses. But any other questions? All right. Um, I think just a reminder again, uh, and I said it, say it here at the end of your notes, but um, God's sovereignty, his plan, um, Israel doesn't trust it. They never do. We never do. Um, they, they don't. They, they're told they'll, they, he'll drive out the enemy. They don't believe him. Little do they know. And, and, and this is, I think, true of probably any generation. You see 70 years, 75, 80 years maybe, of time. Um, and if you, but when we have the privilege of being able to look from this perspective, we see tonight, we see 300, 400 years. If you're able to look from that kind of bird's eye view at 400 years, you go, Look at what God was doing. But in, those, in that 70-year period, what do they see? Fear. God hates us. He's left us. There's no way he's going to protect us because they're only looking at this. Because when we look at this little myopic view that we've got, we're left to doubt and struggle and wonder. But if we were ever able to zoom out and see all that God was doing, I think we'd be blown away. And I think if you could take any character from Israel's history and take them to our point of view and look back at that time, what would they see? Probably the same thing we would see if we were able to go forward 2,000 years and get that kind of bird's eye view. So I think it's better now that we just say, you know what, I'm just going to trust. In spite of the fact that I don't know or understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Uh, in spite of all the things that go on in our lives and how tempted we are to fear, we pray for a resolve in our hearts to just trust you and to just trust that your will is being done and will be done, that you have your purposes, and trust that those purposes are good purposes, not just that, you're, that you have purposes that may be good or bad, but that those purposes that you have are good and they're for our good, regardless of if in the meantime, under our myopic view, they look difficult. So we just pray for the ability to trust. We're thankful that trust is not without reason, with, not without logic that you have provided to us historical record that we can look at and we can see that validates what we find in Scripture so that trust is founded on something. We're grateful for that. Anytime we get a chance to look at that. That's not what our faith is built on, but Lord, it sure does help. So we're grateful for it. We pray for peace in the midst of all of these things that are going on in our lives, not least of which what we prayed for tonight. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.